Hey all, quick Patreon pitch before we get into the main part of the podcast. This was recorded back in June before I started the Patreon, so I'm awkwardly sticking it on here. This version of the cast is an hour and four minutes long, approximately. There's an additional 31 minutes of discussion where we talk about making BG content and more discussion about Vegas that is available on the Patreon. If you want to get this longer episode, the longer episode with Gerald Saunders, and future long episodes including Ziva Fay and others, check it out at patreon.com slash the NSFW Photography Podcast. Now, on with the show. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Not Safe for Work Photography Podcast. There are thousands of models and photographers creating adult content using modern platforms and taking control of their own creative lives. Today, we're interviewing Sydney Screams and Cassie Cummings. Sydney is a plus-size porn star and a photographer with over 14 years in the adult industry under her belt. Sydney is an award-nominated talent best known for her fetish content, ranging from vor to futinari to sensual domination. As a photographer, Sydney's work has been displayed in art shows in the U.S. and Australia, having won several Best in Show awards. Cassie is a transgender porn star and clip producer, new to the industry but already making waves. She has been nominated for Best New Face and Best Trans Clip Producer in just her first year. Cassie primarily focuses on hardcore content, but also films fetish scenes when the mood strikes. How are you two doing today? Doing pretty good, thank you. Full of coffee and ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully you're not swimming in there. (laughs) (laughs) It's too dry here in Vegas for that. Yeah. You are not kidding. I don't think I've drank so much in my last couple of days. And I'm not even talking about liquor. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've been in Vegas now for two days and I have not drank or partied at all since I got here on Saturday because I am a super boring human. (laughs) but anyways (laughs) our topic today is producing adult video work and sin city itself las vegas so i always like to start with how you got into photography and adult work uh what's your superhero origin story (laughs) (laughs) so i started doing photography when i was in high school but my grandpa handed me a camera when i was like single digit age range And I've basically just always had cameras around me. Um, When I hit high school, I started taking photography classes and learned how to develop my own film and work in the darkroom and everything. And then digital came around very shortly thereafter, and I could take more pictures. And I didn't have to count on film. And then uh, I used to put together photography events in Orlando. And someone was like, hey, Sydney, wouldn't it be cool if you were in front of the camera? And I was like, oh, that's daunting. Let's do it. (laughs) Um, And so then I started and then I uh, booked my very first foot fetish shoot soon thereafter. And I found myself in honestly quite a sketchy situation. I was in a hotel on iDrive, which is kind of sketchy area anyway. And I was using some guy's stomach as a trampoline. And now here I am. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) There's uh, a lot to unpack there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out where I want to go from there. <laughs> All right. Oh my god! How wow. quick was the 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 first modeling to the first foot fetish? When I first got on camera, I was doing like pinup girl stuff, and I was mm-hmm. 18. And I just, I, I really enjoyed being in front of the camera. And I had always enjoyed taking pictures of people, particularly women. 
all of my photography colleagues were male. I was one of the only female photographers in Orlando at the time who was showing skill and getting lots of shoots and all of that. And someone was like, hey, let's get you on camera. And then I want to say it was just a matter of months before I was doing foot fetish stuff. Interesting that that was the first one. Although I can see how foot fetish and bondage are kind of the first and easiest ones because they don't really, you're like, oh, well, that I'm not wearing anything on there anyways. So <laughs> what was funny at the time to me uh, that you say that is there were more like art models who would do bondage work than there yeah. were art models who would do foot fetish work because yeah. they could, I guess, make up in their mind that the bondage is still artistic, whereas the foot fetish is fetish. And yeah. that's a line we don't cross. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, definitely have been seen with a lot of art models. There's like the the artsy fetish stuff and there's there's like the fun fetish stuff like ziva does seems to do a lot of like the fun and goofy fetish stuff yeah and, ziva really bridges yeah. the line between both the kind of fun fetishy stuff and the artistic stuff because she does yeah. so much of the artistic modeling as mm-hmm. well yeah and then there's the more explicit fetish stuff that yeah, but, <laughs> anyways uh cassie yes so um mine's very different <laughs> my <laughs> my ex-wife was a fetish performer and Ooh. I supported her from behind the scenes for four or five years. At, at the time, I wasn't in a position to perform as well. So I, I was never in front of the camera, but I got some behind the camera work. Um, I saw how the industry functioned. I saw how connections were made how clips were produced, that kind of, you know, the, the unfun stuff. Um, I ended up separating from her and I moved out West and uh, connected with Sydney. Um, and so my first scene, my very first scene was a hardcore. Um, Sydney had just gotten a dick from what was it? Mr. Hankey. Mr. Hankey's toys. Yeah, that's right. And so, <laughs> and so Sydney needed to make a usage and review video. And so I performed the bottom role for that video <laughs> and it, it was really good. It was uh, 20, 30 minutes long and um, folks really liked it. And yeah. having that experience of being in front of the, in front of the camera for the first time, I instantly knew that this is something that I could conceivably do and excel at i i knew a lot of the back end already you know a lot of performers don't start with that kind of knowledge and have to figure it out as they go which is super daunting because there's so much things that you have to balance in the beginning especially but um but yeah once i had had that first hardcore scene under my belt i came up with my name started building some social media presences and uh, and went from there booked a studio scene shortly thereafter huh. interesting so the, the yeah the the time frame for me is going to be like seven years yeah, like seven, <laughs> seven years from first first experience with my ex wife to entering with with Sydney. So why did you two choose to live in Vegas? So I moved out here in 2016 because my at the time partner was uh, given the opportunity to relocate if he so chose. 
he decided to say yes and take the position out in Vegas. And uh, I was so desperate to get away from Orlando that I was like, I don't care where I go, just send me somewhere. And so I came out to Vegas with him. I didn't move out here for Sydney work at all. I moved out here for him. And uh, Mm. it ended up, I think in the long run, really benefiting me. But I didn't come out here specifically for work. I uh, I moved out west when I divorced. Mm. You know, I, I accepted a position in L.A. and I moved out here, um, knowing no one. <laughs> Reconnected <laughs> with Sydney, and um, once once I had known I was going to be entering the adult industry, I I knew Vegas was where I needed to be, and um, and and moved in with Sydney. Yeah, and now we're dating yeah well we were dating before you oh yeah we were dating before i moved in yeah (laughs) yeah we were also dating before you even considered adult work yeah were we dating yeah (laughs) you didn't bring up doing adult work uh to me until about oh yeah that would have been like two months later august maybe of 28 2019 that's when we started dating okay so it was shortly thereafter then there you go yeah there but we go. were already dating before she brought up wanting to do adult work. And I I honestly tried to turn her off from it because I just... That's true. Yeah. I do that with pretty much anyone who has never done any adult work because <laughs> people tend to not understand a lot of the risks that are involved. And they just see what they see on TikTok, for instance, and think it's going to be really <laughs> easy money. I am not a really annoying person that's like, <laughs> let me tell you how it really is. <sighs> That's right. (laughs) So that leads to at least two follow-up questions. The first one is, is it easier dating somebody in the industry or dating somebody outside the industry? Oof. Okay. So I, (laughs) I, I was the partner in the earlier relationship. So I don't know that I can speak to that portion, but Sydney. So Cassie is the first person I've ever dated who is, who considers herself to be a part of the industry. My ex that I moved out here with, I guess he, uh, in some weird twisted way, considered himself part of the industry, but he was just industry adjacent because of his connection to me and then the connections that I helped him forge with other performers. But he was never, like, the only time he was ever on camera was actually kind of hilariously for Cassie's ex-wife for a custom video. (laughs) (laughs) And then he and I did a couple videos together, but that was the only time he ever performed. I think that dating someone in the industry has some challenges just because of my own personal life experience. But in many ways, I love that Cassie is in the industry. I am very passionate about my work and I like that Cassie and I can just shoot the shit about our jobs together. We can laugh about strange things we saw on the internet today or (laughs) like, Hey, I saw this new camera. Doesn't this look interesting or check out this lighting that this person uses? How can we recreate that? And I, I really value that I have a partner who is on the same page as me when it comes to the professional side of work, the emotional side of work sometimes gets a little, a little cloudy, but Overall, I think that Cassie is a really great partner to be in this industry with because she has an unquenchable desire to learn and grow and better. And 
I got my my first major nomination this past year, and I don't think I would have done that without someone inspiring me and pushing me to get there. Oh. <laughs> I say these things to other people, but Cassie's never around to hear them, but <laughs> she's giving me like sad lovey eyes right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Something about dissuading people from coming into the adult industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I guess I'm more. a gatekeeper. Shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gatekeep, gatekeeping girl boss. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of things about this industry that don't get shown in mainstream media. They they get glamorized, um, romanticized. And when it comes to actually making money in this industry – especially the more adult side of things rather than being like a traveling nude art model. Um, When it comes to actually making money in the adult industry, it's not just booking studio gigs and calling it a day. Mm -mm. Cassie, (laughs) sorry to throw you under the bus here a little bit, baby, but Cassie entered into the industry thinking that she'd be booking one pro shoot a month enough to pay her bills. And then she could just kind of, chill a little bit and do her self-produced stuff much more casually. But the industry isn't so flooded with performers that that's not really the case anymore. And so there's a lot of work that you have to do as a self-produced porn star that people don't see. And like on TikTok, TikTok, I constantly see people like, oh, it's so easy to make $8,000 a month selling foot pictures. But Mm. like, it's not that easy. It's It's fucking hard. And people don't really think of the realistic aspects of what it takes to find success in this industry. They just see the glamour, the parties, the production studios, all of that. And they don't really have a grasp of what it actually takes to make a living doing this full time. Yeah. I'm going to edit out the numbers that I'm going to say, because I Frankly, I try not to release people's rates or anything like that on the podcast because I figure that's, you know, a conversation between people, between producers and photographers. (laughs) Definitely. But I know that, for example, most explicit models, the standard, uh, the standard rate, obviously individual models go higher and lower, whatever. The standard rate uh, for explicit solo content tends to be around dollars an hour for erotic content. Now, if you try and sell videos of that for 10 bucks a pop um, mm-hmm. and you pay a model, you know, dollars for four hours to film various pieces of content, you've got to sell what, like videos to make your money back as the photographer. And then if you're talking about boy, girl content, you're talking about way more than that. Cause that's for hiring both models and hiring a location. And if you want to bring in crew, it's even more than that. Like, it's so, way, way. Like, yeah. 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 So I will say, though, it is a lot easier to recoup your income in this industry than I think people expect. So I do some hiring of fetish models. If someone's coming to town and I know they've got good acting skills and can do the type of con- the types of fetish content that I do. I hire. And for two hours, I generally expect to get four videos per hour. So a total of eight. Interesting. So let's say I am paying them 
$2 an hour for non-nude fetish content. Mm-hmm. That's our investment. I have had clips that sold so well, just a single clip that has sold, let's say 20, 50, 100 times, that that one video makes me back my income. And when it comes to time investment versus dollar investment, hiring a model to create eight videos for me in two hours is a much shorter time investment than me doing like say content trade with a model where I'm probably there for six to eight hours and maybe I come home with four or five exclusive videos, maybe. Yeah. I'm gonna chop, I'm gonna chop this whole conversation to hell. And so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and th- and that's and that's the difference between a trade and paid opportunity because paid no. you're there to work. You're not yeah. there to no. socialize. But you're trade, getting a guaranteed income. Yeah, versus, yeah, yeah. Trade is more of a relaxed. Let's go at our pace kind of thing. Yeah. Because yeah. I think so. In my conversation with Gerald, he was talking about he typically brings in a model for four hours. He usually gets. I think he said six to eight pieces of content in that four hours. So mm-hmm. it sounds like he's being a lot more relaxed than you are. Yeah, always it sounds making like longer pieces of content. It can also be a difference of types of content. Like if you're yeah. shooting wrestling, for example, mm, yeah. that's mm. extremely physically intense. I've been hired to do wrestling uh, work where one hour is one video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas like the videos I shoot, me and the other modeler sitting on the bed talking to the camera about how we're going to feed them fatter or I'm lifting them up because they're light enough for me to do a lift and carry video. And so it's Hmm. not even just like hour for hours, same, same. It's also what type of content. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to lie. I kind of burn and churn when it or churn and burn when it comes to content because I'm just part of that kind of generation where it's quantity over quality. And as I slowly move towards the quality over quantity, it does make it so I get less per hour, but in theory sales are better and whatnot. And so it just, it varies a lot depending on what the type of content is, who the performers are, who the producers are. So it's not as cut and dry as just you get this amount of content in this amount of time. No, and that that actually answers one of my questions later about how do you figure out which fetishes to target? But it sounds like you're taking kind of the shotgun approach. Like, let's hit all the <laughs> fetishes and see which ones sell. Well, some some <laughs> some of the fetishes don't because that's what I did when I when I entered the industry. I quickly realized that I was not booking one studio per month to pay my bills, so I, I needed mm-hmm. to start producing my own content earlier than I expected. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. I did a shotgun approach to fetish and I just did one of every fetish I could think of just to get it out there. See, see what fans wanted from me and <laughs> I'm letting them dictate what I make in right. a broad way, because if they don't want to see me do wrestling content, then I won't do it. I won't waste my time, but I'm letting them pay or vote with their dollars in a sense. And it's funny to see what works for me, what they want to see from me versus what they want to see from my peers, because I may look a lot like another model, another trans model, 
but they're getting paid to do stuff that my fans don't want to see me do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and vice versa, even, yeah. you know? And even, like, when Cassie started, I was like, here are all these fetishes you can do. I'll show you how. And, like, <laughs> things that would work for me don't work for her. Mm-hmm. But I don't really do the the kind of throw spaghetti at the wall technique because I, I mean, I've, I'm much more established than Cassie in terms of my fan base, but I've got four core fetish categories that I post new content in pretty much on a weekly basis. And then beyond that, yeah, I have some stuff that I'm like, okay, I've never tried this before. Let's fucking see if it works. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, I know what my fans want to see from me and I stick to it. Yeah. I have an idea. Yeah. I, I haven't nailed down the top four categories yet, but, you know, I'm working on it. Yeah. When I look at my analytics year over year over year, those, for me, the four categories that are my core four, they're the same. They've been the same for years now. Even before I determined that those were my core four, they were. I just didn't know it at the time. It's interesting you mentioned analytics. Do you keep track of your videos over time and like what sells the most and like which categories sell the most, et cetera? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. That was something that I I tried really hard to instill in Cassie too, Mm -hmm. because if you just are willy-nilly making content and you don't pay attention to what's actually working for you, then you're working harder than you need to and fuck capitalism work smarter not harder you're also just gonna you're gonna discourage yourself because you're gonna look at your sales and be like well no one no one thinks i'm hot no one likes my content no one likes the way that i film things when in reality you're just filming a fetish that they don't want to see you in but they would be happy to see you do this other one over here yeah if you just knew to do it analytics will tell you what they want yeah and sometimes you got to really dig through but my vanilla career was marketing and advertising. And so oh. paying attention to my sex work analytics was just kind of something that I knew to do from the get-go because I had to do that for my vanilla job anyway. And so one of the best pieces of advice I can give to any model is pay attention to what is working for you in terms of what is making you money. But also don't let the money dictate what you do if what you do is not making you feel good about you hmm. that that is that is good advice um it kind of just real quick get on to that i as a trans model um have the ability to very quickly top in a scene without the need of putting on a strap on harness and i am not a top i don't enjoy topping but i see my peers topping and hmm. i sometimes feel that I'm limiting my potential by saying no to those types of situations and not taking those shoots and opportunities. But like Sydney pointed out, if it's harmful to me to do that, then I shouldn't push myself to do that. Right. Yeah. And just because your peers do something doesn't mean you should do it because what works for one person may not work for another. Absolutely. I've, I, I am a, kind of dominant person on camera and uh i try every once in a while to be submissive just because i'm like (laughs) am i limiting myself (laughs) and then my fans see it and they're like what the fuck are you doing sydney this isn't what we want to see why are you being submissive you're you're my mommy dom what's going on mommy's not submissive (laughs) (laughs) and so 
once you're once you really establish something with your fans, like you know, give a a year or two to Cassie if she was suddenly going to top someone. Yeah, her fans may like it, but her fans that really know and value and respect her may look and be like, you've said in the past you don't like doing this. Did you enjoy this? And if she even hesitates, they're going to assume the answer is no and that she's pushing herself to do something she doesn't want to do. And at the end of the day, we're all humans and we got to be kind to ourselves because we're currently in a world that is increasingly unkind and if we can only be kind to ourselves and that's the only kindness we get, then we definitely need to push ourselves to be more kind to ourselves. Especially in a work environment. Yeah. All right. Well, we've gone a little off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. No worries. No worries. Like I said. Oh my God. Like I'm I the said, worst about that. <laughs> no, no. Oh my God. I said I wanted this to be a conversation, not an interrogation. Um, <laughs> that would be a different type of content. And I don't know, maybe that's what the fans will tell me is they want an interrogation. (laughs) There's a fetish for that. No doubt. There's a fetish for everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to need a riding crop and some rope. (laughs) You you don't even. All you need is to recreate like Star Wars interrogation tactics. Use Jedi mind powers. Oh, Oh. I was thinking thinking the scene where the droid goes into the room. Yeah. (laughs) But that like turned a lot of people on in a weird, awkward, formative way. People got turned on by that. I literally have a video from like 10 years ago where I am interrogating my best friend and I'm like, where's the rebel base? (laughs) And um, it sold for me like a month ago. And so it just kind of goes to show you like there is literally a fetish for anything and residual income will literally last you over a decade at least. (laughs) All right. Back to the discussion on Vegas. So where is the center of adult work these days? I wouldn't say that there is a center center. I think that there are different cities that exist that have different things to offer in terms of work. Um, For example, New York and the DMV area are both really high traffic areas for full service or full service sex workers. Hmm. Whereas Vegas, New York makes sense. Lots of money there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And DC, all the politicians. Oh yeah. Politicians. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh, there's people trying to regulate our bodies and take away the ability to legally work. They're all dipping their toes in and, hiring escorts and pro doms and Mm -hmm. Um, but like tampa orlando those are good areas for fetish work whereas vegas i wouldn't say is as good of a place for fetish work vegas i think is a lot more hardcore and then la is a lot more hardcore and miami is a lot more hardcore and then you've even got like Prague, which is really good for hardcore but I think that there's just different cities that kind of attract different types of people and different types of performers. And most of the cities, I think, are kind of transient in a way anyway. And so, like, Vegas gets a lot of people visiting because who doesn't want to come to Vegas? <laughs> and so it's a really good place to be a sex worker in because we do get people that just come to visit and then, oh, hey, I I think I actually want to shoot a little bit while I'm here. Are you available? You know, or they they come to to Vegas and do a week at the brothels and then shoot at 
shoot with people, you know? Hmm. Um, I don't really think that there's a center necessarily. I, I will say trans porn is a little bit more centralized. Um, Vegas is a great place for it, obviously. There's some studios out in L.A., though performers are a little bit more scarce. Um, Florida is a good spot for trans porn. Interesting. Yeah, cool. and like also with trans porn, um, Chicago has yeah, like Groovy like, Productions well, producers mean, out of there. Yeah, Groovy's kind of spread all across. over. Yeah, and and that's because they try to get like the up and comers, you know, yeah. like meet them where they are. Yeah, kind of scenario. Which <laughs> oddly enough, there's a lot of performers that I know in Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so it, it really just varies, but I do think that a lot of people come to Vegas specifically to work. I mean, I shot with someone last month who comes out here once a year she's here for two weeks and she shoots in those two weeks over a year's worth of content huh. yeah yeah i was uh who was i talking to um i was talking to some one of the photographers who came on he goes to this summer thing that's put on uh why can i not remember what it's called anyways they bring in like 20 or 30 models uh, art nude models up to erotic nude, uh, but not really video, just stills. And yeah, he runs his own uh, Patreon type site. And he says he shoots like a year's worth of content in that week and mm. spends yeah. a bunch of money hiring the models and then, you know, puts it up, trips it out on the Patreon over a year and then comes back every summer and does the same thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the way Cassie and I shoot isn't super different, but it's definitely not getting a year of content in a week or two <laughs> weeks. It was a hard working week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll get a few months out of a single test, but yeah, we both like to use our tests to their full extent. Cause very early on I learned like, make sure you always have a backlog of content. And so I always have a backlog of content. <laughs> yeah, That's right. And, uh, I'm not leaving this in the podcast. That was like a one man Bukaki. Oh my God. Like he could just pop, 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 pop. He would have been so popular in yeah. the industry. Oh he was not, he was not well hung, but apparently you know what? just honestly, if you can give multiple pop shots yeah. in a sh- during a day, it doesn't even matter if you're that hung or not. I mean, <laughs> One of my top selling boy girl scenes is with a dick that is very small compared to most porn dicks, but he could pop and have amazing pop shots multiple times per day. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I've got scenes with below average. We'll see now that now I may have to edit that. So I leave that in there. (laughs) (laughs) I have to edit that. So I'm not talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I imagine for hardcore, that's the limiting thing, right? Is the guy's orgasm is is the trouble. It is. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, though, like when I shoot with cis femmes or trans men, we're not worrying about pop shots. And so, and some, I guess, both trans women and cis men as well. Sometimes they are understanding enough of their own body and their ego doesn't get in the way where if we have to fake a cum shot, we will. It's not ideal and we try to avoid it. But Mm -hmm. if someone can't come, like that's their body telling them that they shouldn't. And so we'll fake it. And that's fine. Well, back to the location (laughs) stuff because we keep getting distracted. 
Uh, would you recommend an amateur try to move to a city Ooh. to break in somewhere? Or would Ooh. this be more like what you're talking about where they should try and visit on a regular basis? Or maybe it sounds like visit a variety of places. I, I would, I would steer them more towards visiting. Yeah. You know, property values are going up just about everywhere. <laughs> Vegas is currently like one of the worst places <laughs> yeah. for the inflation. So I would, I would highly suggest visiting first especially in the beginning, because you may not blow up as quickly as you want. And moving to a new city is expensive, Mm -hmm. you know? So I would, I would say, stay where you are, visit if you can make that backlog that we're talking about. And once you're established, more stable in your finances, move to a city if you feel you need to. Yeah. I would say that moving to a city specifically because it is a good hub for making porn is not always the best idea because unfortunately this job can be extremely isolating and moving to a new city is an isolating experience in and of itself. And then you throw in the extra isolation of working from home, Mm -hmm. not knowing people, that sort of thing. Like test the waters of a city before you decide to move there because who knows, like, a few a few months ago, we shot with someone who was like, I'm thinking about moving here. And then we, we spent basically an entire week with him um, for a content house. And by the end of the week, he's like, yeah, I'm moving here. Because he was here, he saw the potential of the numbers of people he could, or the, the types of people he could work with, the numbers of people he could work with. Yeah. And he started creating friendships so that he knew that when he came here, He would be okay. He would have a support system. He would have friends. He would not feel lonely. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's a big thing that a lot of sex workers deal with because this job is especially digital, very isolating. (laughs) Yeah. Where do most people shoot in Vegas? Cause I didn't hear either of you guys mentioned studios in Vegas. Are there friendly studios in Vegas or is it mostly in people's houses, uh, apartments, hotels? There's quite a few shoot houses here shoot houses yes so yeah so so it's just a it's it's a house but it's no one lives in it yeah each room is just set up as a different set yeah and you can film a lot of different themed videos with each of the rooms yeah but there are studios here i i have gotten quite a bit of studio work although those studios will shoot out of a mixture of hotel rooms shoot houses, yeah. apartments. It's just whatever is available to them at the time and whatever's most convenient. Yeah. So a shoot house is like an Airbnb, but for video or photography work? <laughs> kind of. They're they're generally owned by like the actual studio companies. Whereas I feel like you might be asking about like studios that someone could rent, which there are like photo studios here. Mm-hmm. Photo Bang Bang is one of the the more popular ones here. And that one's run... Shit, I just blanked on his name, but Photo Bang Bang's here. Um, mm-hmm. And it's got, I want to say, six or seven different sets. To me, I, I don't think I've seen a lot of video come out of Photo Bang Bang. I've mainly seen photos come out of Photo Bang Bang. Sorry, you mentioned the, uh, the, the photo studios. And I had the mental image of like a studio in a mall and like oh, a yeah. glamour shots. Easter pictures <laughs> yeah. and like you can just hear in the next mm-hmm. studio over like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we visit our local JC Pennies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh 
(laughs) (laughs) We, yeah, we don't, I don't even know if we still have like glamour shots or anything like that in any of our malls, but there are like local photo studios, Mm -hmm. like photo bang bang that are available to rent. And I want to say, uh, the studio that kink shoots out of here in town is available for rent. There are places around town that you can rent out. When Cassie and I were looking for a home to rent, we specifically wanted a home that was large enough that had other bedrooms we could shoot in aside from just our own. Because something I personally struggle with is I get bored of my surroundings <laughs> and so I want to change them. And so being able to shoot, we have three bedrooms that we can shoot in. We have a loft we can shoot in. And so I think a lot of people tend to do that same thing where they try to find a place that they could use as both a shooting area or a shooting studio of their own, but also a place to live. Mm-hmm. But people do get Airbnbs out here to shoot in. Um, they do. I used prior to the pandemic, I used to book hotel rooms once a month and I would just knock out a shitload of content on my own in a hotel room in an afternoon, order myself some room service, watch some Skinamax, take a nap, go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've definitely seen. The Vegas, because the Vegas hotel rooms are usually pretty easy to spot because they always yeah. include the skyline as part yeah. of the video. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's definitely easy yeah. in some cases to recognize exactly which hotel people yeah, are. Yeah, you start, you start <laughs> recognizing the wallpaper or the furniture. Yeah. Someone posted an elevator picture recently and I was like, I know where you are. <laughs> Just based off the elevator. Just the elevator. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned. Uh, going to hotel rooms or shooting at your house. How how do you make it so that it doesn't look like you're just recording, you know, 10 videos in a row from the same location? Do you space out the release over time or do you do things to vary the background? Both. <laughs> well, so, so I, I have, I have absolutely looked at the outfits that I'm in, the room that I'm shooting in and spaced out videos so that, you know, I'm not shooting or I'm not releasing a month's worth of videos that are all in the same spot. Um, so yes, backlog helps with that because you can move videos around and release them as you need to. But we do things like changing the curtains in the room, changing, changing the artwork, changing, changing the, the artwork, bedding, changing the bedding. Mm. We, we, uh, I bought a set of uh, lights that go through the RGB spectrum. And so we've started bouncing colored lights off the walls and, and illuminating curtains in a certain way. You know, it's, you could, you could, ch- you could change out the stuffed animals that are on the shelves or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, there are ways to do this. And yeah. I, I think if someone is creative enough, they'll probably come up with some that we haven't thought of. Yeah. I mean, um, we've shot for folks or with folks who I want to say once a month, they change up one of their sets kind of dramatically, not just like we're changing the curtains or we're changing the bedding, but they'll completely rearrange. They will hang new curtains. They will put up new bedding, but they'll also put new furniture in. They'll go to thrift stores and buy different props they just switch things up as best as they can. And thrift stores are a great place to go to get props, to get curtains, Mm -hmm. to get bedding 
really cheap and then you don't really care if it gets ruined because you paid what three dollars for it like wow i sold a video and it covered it i'm not stressing <laughs> you know what I, that just reminded me i've i've seen people buy wallpaper yeah you can buy removable wallpaper yeah. now that really? it's it's yeah. pull and peel you stick it on yeah and it's really easy to just pull and, off yeah and they just swap it up there's also buying a background stand and buying a variety of backgrounds. Yep, hanging curtains against a wall. Yep. It's it's very easy to switch things up. Um, for me, my my OCD about switching things up also makes it a little difficult because I'm 5'2", and doing certain things on my own is complicated <laughs> and difficult. Uh <laughs> That's the real reason why we're dating. It's, it's so I can get things off the top shelf. <laughs> But there, there's a lot of ways that you can just very easily switch things up. And I see a lot of cam performers really innovating with how they redecorate their space every few weeks. And I I find it inspiring as hell to see, like, there's a, this one performer, I forget her name, but she switches up her one corner that she shoots yeah. in monthly. And she does these elaborate set designs in a corner of her bedroom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, damn, that's incredible. Uh, yeah. Honestly, the most, <laughs> the most impressive and visually appealing sets that I have ever seen are usually cam performers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Cause they've all, they're always shooting from the same spot. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always in the same spot. Yep. But yeah, you know, there are there are some cam girl staples that I, I joke about seeing, like <laughs> the fairy lights with the fake vine leaves, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the draped curtains with mm -hmm. the fairy lights there. You're going to hear a lot of fairy lights, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's awesome. Like yeah. people are creating these intricate unique sets and they're yeah. just doing it based off things they can find at home goods at thrift stores at yeah. ross wherever yeah. and in some cases like here in vegas we have uh i want to say quarterly swaps where people bring clothing props furniture even and we just swap it out and so it kind of is like repurposing things, giving things new life. And that's a huge help too, when you're able to have a community that, you know, I have sex furniture that technically I got from other performers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of being innovative, finding time and making a new set. Mm -hmm. I've been wondering about how to draw the lines between the types of performers. In my mind, I've been thinking of them as amateurs versus professionals, but that's not exactly right. As many of them that I've been thinking of amateurs are getting paid. And when you're getting paid, you're a professional. And we exactly. talked about this a little <laughs> bit before the podcast and you guys had some ideas on this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, so with the advent of OnlyFans, uh, the porn landscape changed dramatically mm -hmm. um it stopped being so decentralized around studios and became possible to uh provide an independent profitable professional income now not everyone is making ten thousand dollars a month and only fans like the big names are you know sometimes you're getting a hundred dollars a month two hundred dollars a month but you're getting paid and like you said that doesn't make you an amateur anymore. So what 
quickly we've we've kind of come up with is that folks who are only fans only or just a general fan site only presence they're considered content creators um Typically, content creators do not collaborate with other performers, although they may occasionally do that. And there's problems surrounding that, but um, that's that's on them to figure out. But um, content creators are not adult performers in my mind, because adult performers, we are aware of and hold fast to the federal regulations that dictate our industry to keep us safe to make sure everyone's good and consenting and aware of what's happening. You know, things like, you know, you're being filmed for an adult scene. This isn't being strong, uh, sprung on you. Uh, you're not under the influence of any drugs or alcohol. Um, you were paid or compensated in some way for your performance. We have proper paperwork for you filled out with, you know, your name and information so that if there's a problem 10 years down the line from now, we're able to contact you and, and ensure that what you wrote in this paper is true and correct. Being a content creator, you don't really need to do that kind of stuff because it's just you. You're selling foot pics on OnlyFans. You know, it, you don't need to fill out paperwork for yourself. In many ways, I look at it a little differently. Um, I think part of that is because I, I am looking at it through a vanilla world scope. Part of my marketing included booking influencers for campaigns. And influencers often consider themselves content creators. And even a porn star, you're creating content. And so I think in, in some ways, labeling someone as content creators can, it can be gatekeepy. And I don't like that. But I also understand the need to have those sorts of distinctions. Um but I, I can still dislike it while understanding that. Um, <laughs> no. But I think that there is a very big difference between clip site self-producers or clip site performers and fan site performers. And there are one of the biggest distinctions is about a year ago, I was contacted by someone who was doing OnlyFans as a side gig. And I inquired about his testing procedures because at the time... I was very concerned about people's COVID testing, as we all should be still, myself included. Um, and he was like, oh, I'm, I'm only getting tested once a month. And I was like, well, industry standard is 15 days for STI testing. And at the time, it was every three days for COVID. And I think that testing is definitely one of the biggest things that separates someone who is a fan site creator from someone who is taking this a little bit more seriously and not to say that fan site no. creators aren't taking it seriously they're taking right. it seriously in a very different way and that's okay right but the testing is to me what makes or breaks someone from being maybe a hobbyist mm -hmm. versus a professional and hobbyist is still a weird term to use because in full service, that means something <laughs> yeah. very, yes, different. very different. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. different. I, I kind of uh, mentioned it a little bit earlier, but when you're an OnlyFans only creator, you aren't really inserting yourself into the industry enough to know those rules yeah. that we follow. And so you may not know that you need to be tested in order to perform with someone else. You may not know that you need a, a release from them to show consent and the absence of drug and alcohol on set. You know, you may not know these things because you're not 
inserting yourself into the industry far enough to uh, to know that yeah. it's not like the the U.S. government comes down and says, "Oh, hey, I saw you made an OnlyFans. Um, <laughs> here's the guidebook for creating pornography within the U.S." Um, it, they don't do that, you know. If if you're not if you're not part of the industry, you'd probably never figure that out. But something occurred to me as we were having this conversation. It used to be about professional versus amateur, mm-hmm. you know, b- before OnlyFans, and you would see amateur as being not in a studio. There was also a phenomenon that's still can still going on that it started prior to OnlyFans of pro am, mm, yeah, professional pro-am. amateurs, yeah. and I think that term really picked up mainstream attention when that movie came out several years ago, and I'm blanking on the name, but it focused on Hussy models. Um, yeah, I can't think of the name of the documentary, but it was specifically talking about pro-am performers and how this one agency was at the time extremely predatory and putting people into situations. Basically, it was it was propaganda that was very anti-porn, anti-adult work. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I had never heard the term pro-am before that documentary. And I think that pro-am is a really great term, actually, now that I'm thinking of it again, because there are people who, yes, they are making money, but they're also, it's not their only source of income. And so in some Mm -hmm. ways, they are still an amateur about it because they are not, it's not paying their bills. Yeah, they're making money, but it's not their livelihood. Mm -hmm. And I I like that term pro-am because I do think it separates the people who are doing this just for funsies the people that are true amateurs who aren't doing this to make money they're doing Mm -hmm. it for fame for recognition for exposure and then you've got the people that okay they're dipping their toe in they're seeing what kind of money they could make Um, maybe they want to take it more seriously but they're not quite there yet you know once their their income picks up then they could quit their vanilla job or their Mm -hmm. day job and dedicate this into being a full-time professional industry or professional career for them. I don't know why I didn't think of that term before. Mm. I've also also seen a lot of gatekeeping around the term porn star. Yeah. Um, Now, now I I consider myself to be a porn star because I'm on the cover of a DVD that you can buy at your local sex shop. Ooh. But, um, you know, some people say, well, you're not a real porn star until you win an award or you're not a real porn star until you're on the cover of a, a DVD or you're not a real porn star until you've been in a, a porn parody of something. <laughs> what, whatever line they choose to draw, s- suddenly right now, porn star seems to be a gate kept term. It's I've seen it be a gate kept term for quite a long time. Um, a few years ago, several years ago, when I still lived in Florida, at the time, I had just been on a few DVD covers, and I switched my Twitter bio to say that I was a porn star. And someone was like, you're not a porn star. You've been doing this at the time for, what, eight years? Like, sorry, that's not. you're not a porn star. You <laughs> haven't years. been in more than 50 productions. You haven't been in more than 100 productions. Whatever. And, like, it's just very gatekeepy. But the fact of the matter is, if you are performing in a, in a porn... If you are starring in a porn. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're the starring talent. You are a porn star. You starred in a porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, 
there's just a lot of gatekeeping within this industry. And I recognize that I am not necessarily helping it by <laughs> telling people you don't want to do this job as much as you think you want to do this job. That's hard work. But it is. And within the industry, like, I've been told that I'm not a BBW because I've never weighed more than 250 pounds. But if you ever look at any of my f- pictures from even day one of my career, I have always had a belly. I have always been fat. And it's just, there's always some sort of gatekeeping within this industry. And it's really frustrating because we're all supposed to be adults. Mm-hmm. And who's to tell me I'm not a porn star? Who's to tell Cassie she's not a porn star? Yeah. Who's who's to make up these these rules other than ourselves? And so unfortunately, there is a lot of gatekeeping. But... <sighs> So I ask this question all the time, but it's a timeless problem. Sketchy dudes. Mm. Do you have have advice for amateur models who are being bombarded with content producers and photographers on how to screen out the serious ones versus the sketchy guys who just want to get their rocks off? Always ask them for references. And the reason you want to ask them for references is, yes, you can go around and ask them or like look up the models that they've shot with. But by asking them, you are setting them up either for instant success or instant failure. Because if they say, I don't have references, that's not a good look. Yeah. If they are willing to give you names, that is a good look. And you should definitely contact those people, but then also contact other people. And the reason I say that is because generally speaking, a producer, photographer, whatever, is going to give you references of people that they know will put in a good word for them. Yes. (laughs) Whereas if you just contact other people that you've seen someone work with, you might learn some things that you wouldn't have known just by contacting the people that are that are referred. Sounds like you should do both. Well, oh, definitely. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Because. You may work with someone who you find out later is a piece of shit. And just because you've worked (laughs) with someone doesn't mean that you're going to give them a positive review or encourage others to work with them. I have people that I've worked with that I would not recommend anyone else work with. But at the time, I thought they were safe enough for me to work with. And so it's important to talk to the people rather than just being like, oh, Cassie's worked with them. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. Just because someone has worked with someone does not mean that they endorse that person. Exactly. Yeah. But if someone messages me and it was like, hey, I saw you worked worked with this model. Could you share if it was a good experience? Would you recommend them? Would you work with them again? Whatever questions. My answer would be no, I will not work with them again. And here's why. But a lot of models don't do that. Mm-hmm. And that's scary to me. Because I know quite a bit about people (laughs) from my own experiences and from experiences shared with me from my peers, because the only thing that we really can do, or one of the only things that we really can do to keep each other safe is issue warnings. But if we issue those warnings publicly, we're often viewed as too problematic to work with. And so connecting with peers is definitely one of the best things that any model can do to keep safe. Because your peers are going to be the ones to let you know this person is safe, this person is not safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, personally, I also like to ask for reference or not references. I'm sorry. I also personally like to ask for um, examples of their work because yes. I I want to know if they can act. I want to know 
how do they perform? I want to know what's the quality of their lighting, what kind of camera they use. Because if they're not making content that vibes well with the content that I make, then I don't think that we're going to work out. I don't want content that looks like theirs if it's bad. Yeah. I want content that looks good. I want content that will sell. I want content that people get excited about. And if it's dimly lit with a <laughs> cell phone in a bathroom and, you know, it's, you know, shooting a weird shower scene. So the audio is all fucked while the water runs. Like, I don't, I don't want that. I had a follow up question on there. And I know that generally speaking, a first time content producer would not be reaching out to you guys. You guys are pretty well known. Although who knows they might. They do. Uh, what, they do. They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> All right. Well then, so maybe this is less hypothetical than I would have assumed. Uh, what could a first time content producer do to try and prove their bona fides to try and, you know, you know, their good intentions and that I'm not just, you know, trying to, trying to get you into my bedroom. So, if, if anything, maybe so, they can't. So for me, mm. I think that starting a conversation professionally is the best way to go. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably easier for me to tell you what people cannot do rather than what they can do. <laughs> I've had pre- people reach out to me. Literally this, this one person has reached out to me multiple times. And every time I say no, he peer pressures me and it feels gross, but he's like, Hey, I want to create in a romantic cream pie scene with you. He didn't include links to his work. He didn't include his name. He didn't include any information other than I want to create this particular scene with you. At the time, I wasn't doing any hardcore. He didn't look into my my work. He didn't know that about me. He just assumed that that's something that I would do, that I would automatically know who he is. I have no idea who this dude is because the name he shared with me, it's not on Pornhub. It's not on X videos. It's not on Minivids. It's not on Twitter. It's not on Instagram. There's no way to verify And so I would say, include your links, be professional, ask if someone even creates that type of content. None of us are mind readers, but assuming that we will know who someone is just based off a name is kind of ableist, which is shitty because someone like me, I have a really bad memory. I don't remember people's names. I struggle with that. I don't know who this person is. (laughs) And just expecting someone to know is not professional. Well, shit too. Like I've, I've not known who some big name performer is just because I'm not in that circle. I'm not a fan of that type of content. I don't work with performers who are in that circle. Like I never would have heard of this person, but they're, they're big in, in their circles. Yeah. But I think for me, if you reach out to me and you're a first time producer, even if you don't have hardcore content with another performer, show me your solo stuff. Show me if it's pictures, show me pictures you've taken of nature or other models, even if they're not nude, like just show me what work you do have to tell me that you you're not, you know what you're doing Yeah. because I don't want to show up and you'd be like, uh, well, I've got, I've got the ceiling light. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, it's, it's a warm tone, I guess. Um, you know, I don't want, I don't want that. I want, I want proper photography. Yeah. yeah. For any producer looking to book anyone, whether it is for a hardcore shoot, for a photo shoot, for a fetish shoot, introduce yourself politely. Mm-hmm. 
give send links to where people can find your work. Ask if there is interest. So many people are just like, I would like to book you. And I get that that is a psychological trick to get people to do what you want them to do. But it also creates a little bit of pressure. So someone who maybe is not super comfortable with saying no or not super comfortable with confrontation is going to feel pressure to automatically say yes because someone didn't ask if that was of interest. Um, you know, I get I get asked by performers, do you collaborate with others? And that tells me right off the bat that <laughs> no, they, they haven't looked at my work. Like, be aware of who you are contacting. Yeah. Know the per. You don't have to be intimately aware of what they create, but all someone has to do is click on a mini vids link, and they'd they'd have the answer. Do yeah. I collaborate with other people? <laughs> they don't even have to go that far. Just one swipe on Twitter. Just yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, know know who we are and what we do, but then treat it like an interview. Yeah, I think it's the best way to summarize. Treat it like an interview. Yeah. Show us whatever type of resume you can, because you're trying to get us on board. Yeah. So impress us. Yeah, impress us. You're not just here to to get your dick wet. You're not just here to have sex. Like, yeah. If you want to be treated as a professional, if you want to be taken seriously by your peers, you have to present yourself in a certain light a professional light a professional light and i i get a lot of people who are like hey ma i'm in town can i come give you back shots and i'm like no (laughs) i don't know shit about you but you just turned me off so much so fast that like there's no professional recovery from this (laughs) i am i'm a professional i am not here to fuck yeah and yeah that's a cool part of my job but it's not why I'm here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm here to create. I'm here to run a business. I'm here to be creative. And sex is, to be honest, a very small part of why I am in this business. Very small. <laughs> and so by coming out the gate as professional as possible, it just sets someone else up as, up for success. All right. Well, I think we are just about out of time. So Cassie, do you have any projects you want to plug? You can find any projects that I'm working on uh, by going to CassieCummingsXXX.com or CassieCummings.Fans. And you can find me on Twitter at CassCummingsXXX. Awesome. Sydney, do you have any projects you want to plug or tell people where to find you online? Uh, Yeah, so I am working on shooting some of a series that I'm hoping to put together into a DVD later this year that is all about presenting all of the different bodies that I shoot with in a beautiful, sensual, sexy light. I've got a name in mind. I'm not going to plug it just in case, (laughs) but um, it's a project that I've been pretty excited about for a minute, and I'm excited to do more shooting for that. Beyond that, you can find me at sydneyscreams.com. My Twitter is sydney underscore screams. My Instagram is sydneyscreams. If you would like to join my my OnlyFans or whichever fan site in case OnlyFans (laughs) does what it does um, and kicks us off, then sydneyscreamsfans.com will be redirected to whatever fan site I am present on. But yeah, just, just Google me. Google me. I'm a very Googleable name. <laughs> and it's Sydney with a Y, not an I. All right. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate being here. It was great great chatting.
And with that, we are done. Check us out at the NSFWPhotographyPodcast.com. On Twitter is at NSFWPhotography, which turns out to have been super generic. I keep getting tagged on stuff that I'm not involved in because <laughs> at NSFWPhotography is just super generic. Instagram <laughs> at the NSFWPhotographyPodcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.